You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, well, you might find. Good morning, and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. We're here every Monday at, I like to say, 10 a.m., but that's only if you're in the East Coast. Of course, New York's the center of the world, so uh, we use our time. Uh, but uh, I, I recall years ago, I was in Bali uh, for a, a Buddhist uh, workshop, and I would, at, at 9 o'clock in the morning, go to a communication center to make a phone call back to New York, and it would be 9 o'clock at night in New York. So it was exactly halfway around the world. So it could be any time where you are, because we are totally global. You can hear us on prn.fm, also on iTunes, uh, uh, tune in, the TuneIn app, the Switcher app, Stitcher app. And uh, what I do is... I I have my phone plugged into my car. I don't my I have an old car, so it doesn't have Bluetooth, but it does have an auxiliary jack. So my phone's plugged into my car most of the time because I'm listening to books on audio books. But I you know that's why I listen to PRN in my car because it's not on the radio, but it's on my phone. Uh, so, however you're listening, welcome aboard. If you want to call in eight 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 seven four. Four eight eight eight. We're going to talk about creativity and destruction today. Uh, but before we get to that, you can also find our back shows at visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. And uh, I have a confession to make. I love listening to myself. <laughs> so I was just listening to some of my back shows this morning. And you can all, oh, by the way, you can also find a hundred of my videos on um, YouTube. And so just go to John Lobel, you find my channel, click on playlists, and I try to get them somewhat organized. But I record all my lectures when uh, at school, I'm a professor, and put them up, and they're all with PowerPoints, so they're richly illustrated. And, oh, and I lecture on cruise ships. So I have little samples of my lectures for cruise ships considering me. You'll find those at lecturesbylobel.com. I just set that website up. So uh, that's, my, that's my latest. So you can find me everywhere. And I, uh, I want to talk about creativity today. I was thinking, you know, so... What do Beethoven, Picasso, and Thelonious Monk and Robert Venturi have in common? Maybe you've heard of some, but not all of those. And what do they share with Angela Duckworth, Lynn Margulis, Carol Walker, and Kathy Acker? So I've been thinking about these creative figures, and our theme today is going to be Friedrich Nietzsche's parable of the camel, the lion, and the child. So I did a book on creativity. It's called Visionary Creativity, How New Worlds Are Born. You can find discussions of it and excerpts from it at uh, visionarycreativity.com, which is one of my websites. And you can find the book on Amazon. And I, it's a book about creativity. 
I started by reading all the other books on creativity, particularly the ones that are on audio. <laughs> actually, I, you know, if you actually read books, call in and tell us how you do it. I mean, you know, <laughs> I've read a lot of books over my life. I paid 500 a month for a mini storage, <laughs> where a lot of them still are. But more recently, uh, you know, I'm sitting in bed. Should I read this book or should I watch a, a rerun of uh, Big Bang Theory? And somehow the rerun of Big Bang Theory often wins out. But I've got uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of books on my phone from, oh, and it's really nifty. You know, with, when I started, you know, even before the phone, there was the iPod. So I have all these books on my iPod, and you plug the iPod into, well, first of all, I buy the books from audible.com, and I haven't figured out how to get pirated uh, free ones. But anyway, I'm a good citizen. So I buy the book on audible.com, and then that would download to my computer. Then I'd plug my iPod into my computer, put it on my iPod, and I could listen to it, which beat the way <laughs> previously I had this fanny pack on my belt in which I had a Sony Walkman, you know, one of those, one of those little tape recorders. And a book would be literally a dozen cassette tapes or more. Uh, could be six to twenty, depending upon the size of the book, and so I would have maybe three or four tapes stuck in the fanny pack along with the with the um, Sony Walkman, and listening to my books, and so it was it was a big advance when the uh, uh, digital versions of the books came along, and. Then there was that interesting phenomenon when I literally threw away the tapes. I mean, where, where have we come to in terms of I, I, I lecture and history of architecture, so it's always my lectures are always illustrated, and I would use two slide project, projectors and two you know two trays of of uh, slides and try to keep them under eight, there's eighty in a tray, so I try to keep them. 80 or less, you know, not go on to a second set of trays because that's, you know, the students start to <laughs> start to blank out uh, at that point. But, and, and I would, uh, originally with a typewriter and then with my Mac and my my uh, dot matrix printer <laughs> would, would type the titles of the slides. You know, it would say Le Corbusier, Villa Savoie, uh, Poissy, France, 1936. So that would be one slide, and the other slide would be a photograph of the building, or, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright, Falling Water, Bear Run, Pennsylvania, 19, also 1936. So um, um, then came along PowerPoint. Well, I had literally uh, 60,000 slides, and you know, the library at school has slides, but who wants to go sit in the library? I'm putting my lecture together in the middle of the night. So I had my own slides, which I shared with my late wife, and about 60,000 of them, which, <laughs> you know, between the film and the processing, it's like a dollar each. But anyway, um, 
So then comes the, the very generously school arranged where I just give these these carousel trays to the library at school, and they would scan them. So then I would have um, gifs of the of the slides. It's a big debate in the TV show Silicon Valley: is it a gif or a gif? Right. <laughs> anyway, whatever uh, of the slides, and. Then slowly, and I, I could watch it happen over the years, there was this phenomena, Google Image. And in the beginning, they had very few images. I, You know, I think of it in terms of art and architecture. Obviously, I'm a very small minority. People are using Google Image for all kinds of stuff. And the images were low res and not what I needed. And if they did have, you know, frankly, right, falling water, uh, they would have one view. And my, I would have 80 views in my, I do a whole lecture on falling water. So there's exterior views and interior views and plans and sections and uh, uh, writes drawings of it and on and on and on. Well, over the years, I watched the, what was available on a Google image increase and till now, uh, oh, and the other part of the other part of my slide story is I made the slides from books. So you know I had tons of basically coffee table type books with great photographs in them, and then I put them on a copy stand, and with my Nikon camera and my fifty five millimeter micro Nikkor close up lens, and my baking hot lights. That were just the right. I don't remember what it was, but it was, you know, a certain color temperature to the lights, so that they were exactly uh, corresponded to the film. So you get perfect color rendition. The other thing I worried about is, uh, are these going to fade? And after like twenty years, I'm looking at my slides and they hadn't faded. So that's cool. <laughs> but anyway. His images start to show up on Google Image. I don't need my slides anymore. And I don't use slides anymore. Um, and the video projector is 10 times brighter. You know, I, I was always taping shut the shades in my room to get it dark enough so that I got good images from my slide projectors. Now you have these super brilliant video projectors. Uh, even if the room is somewhat lit so students can take notes or because it's an imperfect shade, um, you get great images. And you, you, you know, on the PowerPoint, you put the image, you put two images, you put text uh, like uh, Falling Water, Bear Run, Pennsylvania, 1936, or whatever, all together. And you compose it and all that. So what do you do with the slides? So I asked the library, do they need them? They didn't need them. Uh, I threw them away, 60,000 slides. <laughs> Eesh. Uh, who thought that was going to be happening? Um, so, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we'll, maybe we'll get to creativity. But I'm, you know, thinking about, I, do, I teach a course on technology and impact of technology. And I've been doing it since 1969. And uh, I run into my students <laughs> My students from 1969, I think I retired now. Uh, but anyway, I'll occasionally run into a student from many years ago. And, you know, it's good chatting and seeing what they're up to. 
And, you know, like, like I have students at major firms doing the cutting-edge software stuff, and their boss is a silver, you know, silver-haired partner. So I'm at a conference about the cutting-edge building they're working on, and so this silver-haired partner comes up to me and, you know, chats with me. Oh, my God, he was my student, too, <laughs> as well as the young computer hotshots that are uh, doing the cutting-edge technology for the building. But anyway— They'll come up to me and say, how did you know about the Internet in the 70s? Because, you know, I'd be lecturing about how things would be tied together and wired up and all that. And so then we, you know, so one of the books I use over the years, I still use it to this day because it's a classic, is um, not Future Shock, but the the next book by Alvin Toffler, uh, The Third Wave. So The Third Wave talks about, and he he uses the title The Third Wave because, okay, we have uh, the, you know, the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, the Industrial Age. So what are, you know, the Mercantile Age, the Industrial Age, what are we in today? Uh, Our post-industrial age. So, okay, it's the uh, Electronic Age, the Communication Age, the Biology Age. Uh, and he was very aware that, um, you know, no one of these would be adequate. So he simply called it the third wave, with, I think, agriculture being the first wave, industrialization, second wave, and we're now in a third wave. And talking about the rate of change. And, of course, his earlier book, Future Shock, was the rate of change is increasing so rapidly that people can't handle it anymore. So I think about that and— Sitting in this classroom, I've been in this same classroom, not always every uh, semester, but, you know, the same group of rooms because I'm in the same building for uh, since 1970. And I'm looking at the room, and there's this little sort of pipe with a cap on it, a little half-inch diameter pipe sticking out of the wall. So I'll point to that with now my laser pointer. I used to have a flashlight that would have, you know, generated an arrow to point at my slides or use a stick or use an automobile antenna, right, which you can pull out. They don't make those anymore, right? The cars don't have antennas anymore. But anyway, um, um, I'm looking around the room, and I point at that little pipe and sticking out of the wall, I say to my students, what's that? You know what that is? And, you know, some of them would figure it out. Some of them wouldn't. It was, the, the building was built in the 1880s and had gas lights. It was built before electricity, at least before, you know, all buildings had electric lights. So, okay, so the room has gone from gas lights to our current fluorescent lights. Uh, and my slide projector has gone from a a slide projector showing a film slide to a video projector showing a PowerPoint. Image on the screen looks pretty similar. Um, so in my 40-plus years, of t- what, what changes have I seen in this room? I look out the window, there's cars out there. You know, they're, they're 2017 cars instead of 1970 cars. Remember, there was a, there was a uh, Pontiac Firebird out there. <laughs> In the 70s, this thing would fire up and the engine would make – it was pretty loud. Uh, somebody in the neighborhood owned it. But so what's different? You know, um, 
uh, there's cars outside, take the subway to school or drive, one or the other, uh, go up to my classroom, give the kids some Xerox stuff, um, and show slides or PowerPoints. And I, one of my courses we is about Franklin Wright. And we look at this, uh, Franklin Wright's first building on his own, the Winslow House, 1893, uh, first building he did when he, after he opened his own office. And you, it's got an archway on one side. You drive through the archway to the stables. And it's a little cast iron, about foot you know, across, Scotty dog. Uh, did you scrape the horse manure off your boots? Before you go inside, you go inside, there's a mudroom, right, first, and then you get out of your street clothes, which, you know, the streets were a foot deep in that stuff because they had horses. And, uh, you know, it was a big, you know, talk about pollution today. That was pollution. And then where is New York City going to put this stuff? Uh, But anyway, so there's Wright's first building on his own, the... um, uh, the Winslow House with its stables. And then he's got this building that he um, uh, was a project. Didn't didn't actually do the building. Didn't get built because it was 1956, the Illinois, a mile high with atomic-powered elevators. So here's this guy, Frank Lloyd Wright. A year he's born, they laid the first uh, transatlantic cable. And when he dies, he's watching color television. Uh, the year he's born, they finish the Transcontinental uh, Railroad. And the when he dies, he's flying in Boeing 707s. The, we, we're still in the 700, the Boeing 700 family. We're up to the 787. But um, the first one in the family is the 707. He was flying in those things when he uh, when he traveled. So he experienced these ch- changes. So here, my question for my students is, are we going to experience the range of changes that Franklin Wright experienced over the course of our lives? You know, will I and will you, my, my 20-year-old students? And <clears throat> it's it's interesting thing to think about. And Boy, did I get uh, way late here. I was going to talk about creativity. Maybe we'll get back to that. But anyway, um, the the book I would use, one of the books I would use would be Toffler's The Third Wave. And then two other books, The Limits to Growth. And that's also about 1970, 69, 70. And it's about how we're going to run out of everything. We're going to be, you know, it, it's in the genre of another book called The Population Bomb by Ehrlich. Ehrlich's still alive, still stands by that in the 70s and 80s, hundreds of millions of people are going to die of starvation because of populations out of control. And it's, you know, Malthusian position that the um, increase in the food we can grow is is linear, and the increase in the population is exponential. So we're going to run out of food. We're going to run out of land. We're going to run out of uh, aluminum. We're going to run out of uh, landfills. And we're going to be knee-deep in people, knee-deep in pollution, uh, etc. So, you know, <laughs> we could pay some more attention to that. Uh, totally agree. 
but the catastrophes he was predicting just didn't happen. And so the book, The Limits to Growth, is I, I use it to this stay with my students uh, because it's predicting all the stuff that we hear today. I mean, there are books like Hot, Flat, and Crowded by Thomas Friedman. It says exactly the same thing, only it was written three or four years ago. Uh, but by reading a book from 1970 that says that, the student can then exercise some critical perspective. Then the other book we'll read in with that is a book by Herman Kahn called The Next 200 Years, in which he seeks to refute it. it says, um, 200 years ago, we were everywhere, humans were everywhere scarce and um, short-lived and living in scarcity. And 200 years from now, we'll be numerous, abundant, and living in prosperity. And we're in the midpoint of that uh, development. And he wrote the book in uh, 1976. It was the 200th anniversary, the bicentennial of the United States. So, And it was a, a direct um, commentary on limits to growth. So it's, and, and both books are together between, uh, what, 30 and 40 years old, just very ballpark. And so I have the students read both of them, and then they can be, you know, critically analyze them because they have their, the perspective of the past 30 and 40 years and their own awareness from which to say today, do we do agree or disagree with these books? Anyway, um, how did I get onto that? I got onto all this about change and the changes we live through. And should I continue with that or go back to creativity? Let's go back to uh, creativity. And I'm thinking about talking about change. Um, <clears throat> um, so my book, Visionary Creativity, How New Worlds Are Born, looks at how creativity grows out of its culture. So, you know, uh, Picasso, uh, a cubist painting by Picasso, 1910, something like that, uh, grows out of the uh, culture of the early 1900s. And it's the same time, so it's reflective of its culture. And it's related to other cultural phenomena. So the shifting point of view that we see in a cubist painting is paralleled by the uh, subjective point of view in a stream of consciousness novel by Proust or Joyce or Virginia Woolf and is uh, reflective of what we see in changing society, uh, breakdown of class roles, breakdown of gender roles, women getting the vote, et cetera, et cetera. And the uh, change in physics to Einstein's relativity in which uh, things are relative um, and there is no absolute time or space. And at the same time, um, we have the um, all these works, but let's say Picasso's um, Cubist painting is reflective of that culture, and at the same time is creating that culture. So that's what my book's about: how works of creativity reflect their culture and then also drive it forward. And in driving it forward, creating new things, they destroy old things. So. You know, classical academic perspective painting of the French Academy, 
uh, gets done in by the Impressionists, Post-Impressionists, and then Cubism. And so in looking at that destruction, there's a, uh, I have a, a section on uh, a movie called The Man in the White Suit. So The Man in the White Suit is a 1951 British a satirical comedy starring Alec Guinness. Now, how do we know Alec Guinness? <laughs> he did these wonderful British comedies, and then late in life he did <clears throat> John le Carre Smiley in some of these really uh, riveting TV series. I mean, it's on a par with the best of the miniseries today. And, of course, today we're in the golden age of miniseries. But we also know him as Obi-Wan Kenobi in the Star Wars movie. But anyway, in this movie, Alec Innes plays a young chemist who works for the English mills. And so, you know, we're in the heyday of the uh, English mills, uh, weaving fabric, importing cotton, exporting woven cloth all over the world, dominating their industry. And he, and we're in the age in the early 50s of these new synthetic fabrics. You know, we've just uh, recently developed nylon and we get nylon, rayon, uh, all the related uh, synthetic fabrics. And nylon was originally created as a synthetic silk, right? So, you know, you need silk for parachutes. It has to be lightweight and super strong. Well... <laughs> There aren't enough uh, silkworms. And so the development of nylon out of out of oil, out of coal or oil, you know, a hydrocarbon making a synthetic fiber. And so we're getting all these new synthetic fibers, and eventually we turn against them. You know, it's like we look on our labels now for 100% cotton. Uh, these polyester uh, T-shirts, you sweat in there, and they don't breathe. And interestingly, more recently, they've done something to polyester where it actually, you know, a 60-40, 60, 60 cotton, 40 polyester, I find pretty pretty nice stuff. And somehow they've now breathed. They did something to the polyester where it can breathe. But anyway, we're in the age of that, um, you know, new synthetic fibers. And our character in the uh, Sydney Stratton. So Sydney develops a... Super strong synthetic fiber. And super strong means super strong. There's a scene in the movie that they're making this stuff and they're using jackhammers to cut the cloth, you know. And it's also won't stain. So it's all it's white. Only you can't dye it because it won't you can, it won't it won't hold dirt, it won't hold dye. It's so he makes himself a white suit. He's a man in the white suit. Well eventually uh the mill owners and the union figure out, wait a minute, everybody's going to buy one set of clothes for life. <laughs> your, your clothes will never wear out. Your, you know, your clothes will never get dirty. Your clothes will never get stained. They'll never get ruined. Uh, they're indestructible. They can't get dirty. They can't get stained. We're, we're going to be out of business. This ain't good. So they turn on Sydney, and uh, 
in the climactic scene of the movie, he's being chased. It's at night, and his suit glows. It's slightly radioactive. <laughs> this was not, in 1951, this was not considered to be a problem. I don't know if you want to wear radioactive clothes, right? <laughs> but this was before atmospheric text testing of nuclear weapons. It's only, what, um, so 45 is the atomic bombing of Japan. So this is only six years later. And so we're not really aware that, uh, you know, radiation is uh, maybe not a good thing. So his suit is slightly radioactive, not dangerous, but it glows in the dark. So he they, he's being chased by the mob, right, seen out of Frankenstein, uh, through the streets. And maybe it's Manchester in those English mill town. And uh, they can track him because his suit glows. And eventually the mob catches him. And they go to rip him apart, and they grab it, and his suit comes apart. They grab at his suit, and it just disintegrates, comes apart in their hands. There's been a um, an error in his chemistry, and his suit's super strong, but then it deteriorates. So, uh, you know, the mob is gleeful. They leave him alone. They all walk off with their souvenir of shreds of glowing, uh, disintegrating cloth. He's standing there in his underwear. Um, and uh, slightly dejected for a moment, but then he starts thinking, and suddenly he lights up, and this chemical gabloop, gabloop sound that had gone throughout the movie uh, reasserts itself, and he pulls out a little notepad, and he starts writing down his formulas. He's figured out the problem in his chemistry. He's solved it. He's going to, you know, recreate his uh, his uh, um, his uh, indestructible cloth. So, okay, now uh, the his invention of the suit is destructive to the existing industry. Think of. Uh, <laughs> Ubers and yellow taxi cabs. Uh, before the advent of the Uber, a taxi medallion was about a million dollars. And that's disgusting that that happened. I mean, they should have gone back to the city. If you, were, you buy it from the city for $75, you don't want it anymore, you sell it back to the city for $75. But they let it get out of control, went up to a million dollars, and now what? They can't say, you know, uh, we'll buy them all back for $75. People, this one guy bought a 1,000 of them, big taxi fleet. That's a billion dollars, which he borrowed from the bank. Uber comes along, and suddenly uh, these medallions start dropping in value. Now they're worth half a million each. So the bank calls this guy. I don't remember who it is. You find it in the newspapers. The bank calls the guy up and says, uh, "Excuse me, um, you 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 owe us a billion dollars. It's collateralized by these, you know, what was a billion dollars worth of uh, worth of uh, taxi medallions, which is basically a permit to run a taxi. And uh, if you're not a New Yorker, uh, so you buy a taxi, paint it yellow." But you need a license, and there's a limited number, I don't know, something like 30,000. There's a limited number of taxis, and no more. And they recently created more, and they're the green ones, which have to op- operate out of Midtown New York, uh, Midtown Manhattan. But anyway, um, so the medallion is a permit to have a taxi. 
and they were eventually went up to a million dollars each, and they suddenly dropped to half a million each, and that means this guy's billion-dollar loan is collateralized by only half a million in um, in collateral of medallions. So the bank calls him up and says, uh, could you send over a check for uh, half a billion dollars? <laughs> you know, to cover the uh, uh, the missing collateral on your loan. So you know, he doesn't have any half a billion dollars. So it, the whole thing was a disaster for the taxi industry. Point being, the Uber is a new thing, created a totally new thing, but destroyed an old thing. And creativity does that. Uh, creates the new but destroys the old. And as the taxi cab industry will tell you, so here is Stanley in the man in the white suit, Stanley Selden. I'm sorry, Stanley Stratton, uh, destroying or potentially destroying the um, the uh, mill industry, the fabric industry, clothing industry, with his indestructible white suit. Well, um, you know. Were the mill owners and the union members right in what they did? I mean, the union, the mill owners, uh, their grandparents had built that industry. You know, they didn't they didn't uh, suppress innovation. They embraced it, battled with it, and built something. And maybe uh, the current mill owners, instead of defending their industry, could have started a new industry, fashion. You know, yeah, your suit will never, your clothes will never uh, disintegrate. We have that already today, right? How how many, how much of your clothes fall apart? Usually, you buy new clothes because you want a different color, a different style. Uh, uh, so they could have, um, they could have uh, launched the fashion industry for this new indestructible clothes, and the mill owners could have. I'm sorry, the union members could have gone to the mill owner and say, look, we realize our jobs are disappearing. We want severance. And then we want enough money to pay for our kids to go to fashion school, become designers for this new emerged industry. And interesting, I teach at, um, well, I'll just tell you, it's Pratt Institute, Brooklyn, New York, the cultural center of the world. <laughs> it didn't used to be that way when I started teaching there, but now it is. And it's a really cool school. So we have a lot of departments. I'm going to leave. I'm going to miss some, but architecture, which includes uh, city planning, and then fine arts, painting, sculpture, printmaking, etc., and then <coughs> uh, design, which includes industrial design, uh, fashion, um, interior design. So those are the fields we cover, and. Pratt was in trouble uh, when I got there, or shortly thereafter, financially. Uh, some years of, uh, shall we say, mismanagement, and the whole world was, you know, kind of stressed out in the '70s and '80s financially. Uh, architecture went through hard times, and it's well, lots of business industries did, lots of disciplines did, and now they're all booming. So, you know, we're in good shape, but. At one point, our uh, incompetent administrators, not the current ones, but the 70s and 80s, said, well, you know, we can't raise money because 
<laughs> How can, our alumni aren't doctors and lawyers. They're uh, painters. They don't have any money to, to contribute to us. You know, we represent these fringe, peripheral, low-income industries. Well, not so. Um, architecture, you know, painting's a $66 billion industry. Uh, art is. Um, um, architecture, there's cities, city planning, cities are going up like mushrooms around the world. So, you know, multi-trillion dollar industries. Uh, design, it's one of the biggest interest, industries there is. And Bloomberg, when he was mayor, declared design is a New York industry competitive with uh, finance in terms of its importance. Uh, finance and tourism and design are the major industries of New York. So to say, well, they could become designers, uh, it's not you know, in Stratton's uh, uh, industry of the, the man in the white suit in their mills. Well, that's realistic. It's a huge industry. And anyway, uh, so that's the notion of creativity and destruction. So one of the things I do in my book is I have a series of sections where I look at several figures. Um, Galileo, you know, let's get real academic-y here, right? <laughs> so I look at Galileo and um, Beethoven. Galileo's heliocentric universe, Beethoven's Third Symphony, Van Gogh's Starry Night, and Frank Gehry's Guggenheim Bilbao Museum. So you should know all those, right? So Galileo said, uh, supported Copernicus's theory that it's the sun and not the earth in the center of the solar system. Uh, Beethoven began his career uh, producing what we might call the Viennese Symphony, uh, that had been pioneered by Mozart and Haydn, and then goes on to Romanticism and the Third Symphony, the Eroica, and most famously the Fifth Symphony, and then the Ninth Symphony. And um, the most famous painting now of all time, most popular painter, is uh, Van Gogh in his painting Starry Night. And finally, uh, the Frank Gehry's Bilbao is that wavy metal building. You know, it looks like crumpled paper. So I'm sure, you know, if you don't know, it's the Bilbao Museum. It's it's a Guggenheim Museum branch in Bilbao, Spain. So for a while, the Guggenheim was very adventurous in doing branches under, I forget the name of the uh, director at the time. And then he, he left when the financial backers said, hey, we can't, we can't afford this. We can't. Interestingly, I'm going to say something very uh, controversial, but I think museums should be able to sell paintings. You know, it's very frowned upon. And it's only, you know, well, if you want to trade a painting with another museum so that it, um, because, you know, it, it would be better off in, in, in the company of a different collection, that's sort of accepted. But actually selling a painting, never. Uh, it's very, it's done, but it's very frowned upon. I think it should be okay if you do it carefully and, and you know, to say that, that it's to forward the museum's mission and, 
It'll be in another collection or eventually museum where people will be able to see it elsewhere. But anyway, that's that's a digression. So we look at each of these, and what I do is look at how they're in the context of their times. And so, but then I look at how each of them destroys a previous worldview. So we get, for example, Galileo's um, heliocentric solar system, sun's in the center. And uh, we have the very famous uh, confrontation between Galileo and the pope. And the, at his trial, uh, Galileo is accused by the inquisitor. Uh, you know, the church says the earth is in the center and unmoving. Uh, of the solar system, of the wor- of the universe, of existence. And Galileo says, no, it's the sun. And interestingly, we know, we know Galileo is right and the church is wrong. And in fact, the church has um, acquitted Galileo. <laughs> he said, fine, fine. His, his conviction's overturned. Uh, uh, but Galileo wasn't right either because Galileo said the sun was the unmoving center of the universe. Well, it's not. First of all, it's not the center. Um, it's a the oh, and he said the orbits were round. The orbits of the planets were circles. They're not circles. They're ellipses. And the sun's not in the center. It's in one of the two foci. So an ellipse has two centers or two foci. So, um, so what was going on with Galileo? Well, Galileo had this. Um, a fixed point of view, you know, that, first of all, he had this notion of an abstract space and time. Imagine a grid extending through space. And so that was the radical change that he made, that there's this uniform grid of space and time, and the planets move within that grid. So that the... um, the there is not the, the earth is not this unfixed center of existence as had been uh, experienced by many although the greeks you know uh, some of the greeks had a uh, a pretty modern point of view about the solar system there, there's a book uh, by archimedes called the sand reckoner and it's a popular book it's it's excerpted in lots of places you probably find it online and in it he says if you were to make a sphere the size of the Earth's orbit around the sun and fill it with grains of sand, how many grains of sand would there be? And he does the calculations. It's called the sand reckoner. Uh, and he's doing this in, in uh, ancient, you know, B.C. Greece. So anyway, so Galileo destroys this um, previous Earth-centric point of view for replaces it with this abstract space and time. But then that point of view gets destroyed by Einstein. And the key to Einstein's special relativity, the key idea is that there is no absolute space. There is no grid. Um, And just to, you know, bug people uh, to say, well, the Earth goes around the sun. Well, no, only if you assume the sun is the stationary center, then the earth goes around it. You can assume the earth is stationary, then the sun moves. Uh, uh, There is no absolute one is right, the other is wrong. 
Uh, so, you know, one of the questions that we like to ask is, how, what, what is our motion uh, here on Earth? Well, we know it's revol- you know, rotating, spinning. Okay, that's cool. We know 24 hours spins around. It's about 1,000 miles an hour if you're on the equator, 24 hours to go 24,000 miles. Uh, <clears throat> and then it's revolving around the sun. Okay, we pin that down. It takes a year. We can calculate that motion and put the two together. Uh, and then we know that the sun is part of a cluster, and it's sort of rotating. And then we know that the sun is on one of the arms of the galaxy, right? And the galaxy is rotating. We're on a spiral galaxy. Okay, we can even calculate that. But then you start adding these all. Is the galaxy moving? And then it's, it's expanding. The space is expanding. If you add it all together, what's the motion? What, 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 how are we moving? And so 1893, Michelson Morley at Case Western Reserve uh, set up an interferometer experiment where you bounce, you send out light, it hits a mirror, bounces back. And the wavelengths of the incoming and outgoing light, uh, by do they line up or are they eccentric to each other? And doing that, you can measure the speed of light extremely precisely. I mean, down to the... Uh, a distance that light moves in one wavelength. So uh, <laughs> they say, okay, so let's do it at right angles. We'll, you know, let's assume we think we're moving in this direction. So we'll send the light out that way. We'll send the light out perpendicular to that. And the difference will tell us how much we're moving. There's no difference. Uh, that means we're not moving. <laughs> uh the Earth is the unmoving center of the universe, or there is no absolute space. One or the other, both of them were pretty unpleasant. And Einstein grabbed onto there is no absolute space. So Einstein overthrows, destroys Galileo's point of view, Galileo's and Newton's. And then I look at um, uh, Beethoven, and you look at the Viennese uh, Symphony, and it has this structured uh, uh, development in which you lay down a premise, you lay down an alternative premise. The two then uh, battle each other, in effect, and then there are resolutions. So that's the structure of a, um, of a Viennese symphony, and it's highly rational. Uh, and Beethoven introduces Romanticism in which the emotional, the, the structure is subservient to the emotional uh, thrust of the music rather than the other way around. And so he overthrows the structured Viennese uh, symphony. But then in doing this, this is part of the broader romantic movement. We have um, romanticism in painting, uh, Casper uh, David Friedrich, but you might not be familiar with him. So let's just describe Turner with his uh, his seascapes and uh, churning storms and uh, powerful, uh, powerful emotional paintings in is saying, in effect, you think that your rational uh, analysis can comprehend the depths of the human psyche or the power of nature, uh, no way. <clears throat> so that um, uh, human emotion becomes 
more powerful than human rationality. And so we see Beethoven's music in that context. And then we look at um, we look at Van Gogh's Starry Night, and we have these swirling vortices. So there's stars and a moon in this night scene. And there's poplar trees. And the poplar trees look like flames sort of licking the sky. And the um, actually, we're now set up, I'm told, to have images on this radio show, since we're on the Internet anyway. And so next time I do this, I'll bring images. But anyway, uh, so look at the stars in Van Gogh's painting. And they're not dots. You know, they're not burning little precise points. But they're swirling vortices. And we look at the field theory and physics of the time. And in those field theories, um, particles are not uh, particles. They're not objects in space. But there isn't space. They're fields. And these fields, would there are swirling vortices in these fields. Those swirling vortices are electrons, protons, neutrons, the particles. So... Um, and we can see these fields. You take a magnet, a bar magnet, you know, like a little five-inch long bar magnet you have in science class. You put a piece of paper over it and spill iron, iron filings on the paper. And the iron filings arrange themselves in these um, lines, uh, lines going from north to south pole on the magnet. And these are this is the, the magnetic field around the magnet. There's a gravitational field that things move through, uh, arrange themselves in, like the orbiting planets, as Einstein shows. So we see how this painting by Van Gogh is destructive of the firm classical world of space and time of the previous arts and... Uh, spills into this uh, whirling vortices of forces. And then finally, the last one to look at is this recent work of uh, Frank Gehry's Bilbao Museum. And then look at that in the context of our unglued world today, our postmodern relativistic world. Well, I had thought I might go on further and look at some contemporary figures uh, Angela Duckworth, Lynn Margulies, Carol Walker. Um, y- you might be familiar with Carol Walker did the Sugar Sphinx. There's a sugar factory, Domino Factory in Brooklyn that had been there forever, you know, 100 years or whatever. And it was closing down. It's going to be torn down and become apartments. And so uh, as sort of cele- celebrating its uh, marking, its end, she did this giant sculpture about, oh, what's it, about 20 feet, made out of sugar of a black woman in a crouching position. And Carol uh, Walker's art is very strongly addresses uh, racial tensions. And her she began with um, cutouts in black paper. You know, you have these sort of, what's it called in the late 19th century, they would cut out, you know, these uh, elaborate patterns and make little little valentines and stuff with scissors, cutting out uh, profiles of figures. And so she would do these artworks, which were cutouts of scenes, scenes in slavery. 
and very, you know, looking kind of pretty, but when you look close, very disturbing and um, a real challenge to the artwork of the day. So, and then Lynn Margulies, a in science, a biologist. And let me wrap up just by talking briefly about Lynn Margulies. We're running out of time. But for a while, she was married to Carl Sagan, famous astronomer. Uh, he called himself an exobiologist. So he studied biology of life on other planets, which obviously is very speculative since we don't have any as of yet. And uh, also science popularizer. So, you know, his uh, TV series, which was recently recreated by, what's his name? Who's that? Anyway, that uh, the uh, director of the Hayden Planetarium, who you see on TV all the time, a real popularizer of science. His name's skipping my mind, but he recreated Carl Sagan's series, and either of them are worth uh, worth watching. The new one simply updates some information, but doesn't really change it. But in 1976, we landed on Mars, and the first thing is a little landing stuff was going to look for life. <laughs> and Carl Sagan was in charge of the uh, look for life. And so every night he'd be on TV. And uh, he, uh, first night they land and the sky is blue uh, from the pictures coming back. They say, Carl, why is the sky blue? He says, well, the infrared gets caught in the air and and next day they said, oh, we had the filters all wrong. The sky's actually red. Uh, Carl, why is the sky red? Well, there's a lot of iron oxide in the air. <laughs> a lot of iron dust. Uh, but anyway, um, Lynn Margulies, who was by then divorced from uh, Carl Sagan, says, oh, yeah, those boys with their toys. Uh, I can tell you whether or not there's life on Mars or any other planet. You don't need to land on it. You just look at the chemistry of the atmosphere. Um, you know, like look at our look at our atmosphere on Earth. It's got oxygen in it. Well, oxygen doesn't free oxygen doesn't exist. Oxygen locks up. You name it, it oxidizes. Iron will oxidize. It's called rust. Um, your hamburger will oxidize. It's called uh, decomposition. You know, corpse will oxidize. Uh, everything, oxygen is so aggressive, it'll eat anything. It'll lock up with things and produce an oxide. And to be free in the air, our atmosphere is about, what, 28% oxygen. It has to be actively poured out by an ongoing metabolism of the life form. If all life were to die, it would quickly disappear. It would lock up, become carbon dioxide become iron oxide, become, you know, just lock up with other, with other chemicals, and it would not be free oxygen in the atmosphere. So you can look at the uh, atmospheric uh, content and see whether there's life there. So Lynn Margulies uh, really challenges the boys in science, and it's delightful stuff to read. So I strongly recommend Lynn Margulies. Any of this stuff, since you're listening online, just hop over to Wikipedia, and that'll, that'll start you off. Well, listen, this has been great. Um, next time, we're going to try mixing in some images. So uh, hopefully you'll be online, and you can catch them. 
I'm John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. We're here every Monday on PRN.FM. And 10 o'clock New York time, whatever time it is, wherever you are in the world, you catch our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com. We have shows on creativity, technology, science, uh, interesting guests on transhumanism, Natasha Vita Moore, talking about Joseph Campbell with uh, the director of the Campbell uh, Foundation, talking about artificial intelligence with Louis Serrano. Uh, some of these people like uh, Louis, L-U-I-S, Arana, A-R-A-N-A, uh, I happen to follow, I haven't been in touch with him since the show, but I happen to follow him on Facebook so you can see what these people are doing. Uh, he's often launching new uh, new artificial intelligences. He's training his, he's got a little uh, uh, thing, <laughs> this woman you can talk to online. Uh that he's built in his artificial intelligence, so you can follow that. So uh, you can follow our shows and the stuff we're referring to online, and see you next week.